I'm about to show you the 10 most common main character mistakes that new fantasy writers make. And this comes from having edited fantasy stories for 19 different writers so far this year, along with getting on over 70 coaching calls with those authors to help them improve their books. And for me personally, I've been writing fantasy novels for over a decade and I've had to learn about many of these mistakes the hard way. And the reason these mistakes are so important to know is because if you can avoid them, you have a much better chance of writing a main character who feels realistic and compelling and three-dimensional and who is somebody that readers can deeply connect to and deeply care about. And the first mistake to avoid is lacking emotional truth. I think write what you know is horrible advice. Instead, you should write what you felt. What gives a fantasy book meaning is not just the events in your story themselves, but the emotional significance of those events. In other words, how do those events make your readers feel? And I think a lot of new fantasy writers do start off by copying their favorite characters from books and movies and TV shows and just plugging them into their stories. And the problem with this approach is it creates very shallow characters where there's no sense of that realism to them. It's only when you can really infuse them with a piece of your own soul that characters come to life. So for example, if I was going to write about a nomad cursed with immortality and forced to wander this post-apocalyptic fantasy world that is completely deserted, knowing that he's going to forever be alone, I've obviously never been in that kind of fantastical situation. But I could draw from my own experience of when I was living in Vietnam for three months working as an architect over there and just feeling an incredible sense of, of bitter loneliness there because I was struggling to connect with the people I was working with. Obviously they all spoke Vietnamese and I only knew a couple of words of Vietnamese and I didn't really have any friends over there. I was living in this concrete jungle of a city in Ho Chi Minh City and it was a very lonely and miserable time for me. But there's a lot of emotional truths and a lot of specific sensations I could draw from that experience into this nomadic character. And by infusing this character with some truth from my own life, from my own experience, that character is going to feel so much more realistic and relatable and compelling for readers to follow. As Anton Chekhov said, everything I learned about human nature, I learned from me. So right now I want you to think about a scene in your story. And the first thing I want you to do is just note down the actual events, the actual plot that is happening in this scene on the surface. Then I want you to think about some experience from your life where you could reflect on that experience deeply, reflect on the emotions you felt in that moment and ask yourself, how can I extract those emotions and infuse them within this scene? So basically try to find a similar emotional experience that you can use to add extra depth and realism to this moment in your story. And for bonus points, try to get as specific as possible here. So ask yourself, when I was experiencing this emotion, what particular bodily sensations was I feeling? What did this emotional experience make me think about? What did it make me pay attention to? What did it make me ignore? As Donald Mass says in The Emotional Craft of Fiction, to be effective, writing about emotions has to be artful, which is another way of saying surprising. And the absolute best way to tap into that sense of surprisingness and uniqueness is to be drawing from your own lived experience, something that no other writer can draw from. Doing so will give readers a much greater emotional connection to your main character. As we're fixing our second common mistake, weak challenges. To quote from Robert McKee in Story, true character is revealed in the choices a person makes under pressure. The greater the pressure, the greater the depth of true character that is revealed. Now, if you give your characters not very difficult choices, if you don't put them under a lot of pressure, we never really get to see who they are. It, it's kind of probably like the friends that you have in your own life, right? There are people who you've probably never seen them go through a great period of stress or you've never seen them confronted with an immensely difficult moment. And because of that, you maybe struggle to know who they are at their core. And maybe you don't feel like you're that close with them. On the other hand, you probably have people who you've shared 
incredibly traumatic or incredibly difficult moments in your life with them. And because you've seen how they react to the absolute worst situation possible, you have a much greater sense of trust or at least knowledge of who that person really is at their core. Adversity reveals character. So the more adversity you can give to your characters, the greater the sense of understanding that readers will have for them. And the reason why adversity is so important is because it's the choices a character makes in these situations of immense pressure, immense stakes that reveal who they are. And there's two ways to make your choices even more impactful and to have an even heightened effect on your characters and your readers in a story. The first is to make sure that you're presenting characters with difficult choices where both outcomes are kind of equally weighted. So if you just give your characters a difficult choice, but there's a very clear good option and there's a very clear bad option, it's gonna be boring to read. We don't wanna read about that stuff. We wanna read about characters being forced to choose between two equally bad choices. It's in those situations that we really get a sense of what's important to them by seeing what they are willing to sacrifice and what they are never willing to sacrifice. And then on a similar note, the freer a character's choice becomes, the more we feel like that choice is true to the character. If someone else is kind of putting them in a position where they're forcing them to make one particular choice, that can work, but it's less interesting than a character freely choosing to go down a particular path freely choosing to pursue a certain object of their desire. A really useful exercise to do for your main character, and this is an exercise I actually gave to the students in my fantasy outlining bootcamp the other week, is to write down the 10 worst things that could happen to your main character. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to make all of those things happen to your main character, but quite often when I'm reading first drafts by new writers, they're not challenging characters to the fullest extent possible. They're not asking the question of, what's the worst thing that could happen to this person? They're not pushing those characters into these incredibly dark corners. And that's a real shame because if you never really push your characters into those moments, then readers never really get to see who they are at their core. To quote from Robert McKee again, when a story is weak, the inevitable cause is that the forces of antagonism are weak. An antagonist doesn't just have to be another character that's resisting your protagonist or your main character. It's any force that prevents them from achieving their goals. And the stronger you can make that force, the more struggle you're going to put the main character through, the more entertaining your book will be to read. And a big thing that can give your main character more of a meaningful challenge to chew on is to increase the antagonist's moral power, which leads to our next mistake. No attempt to see your main character from the antagonist's perspective. So obviously there's a reason why you've picked the main character to be the main character of your story. You probably align the most with their struggles, you relate maybe the most to the thing that they're trying to achieve and possibly you want readers to maybe like them or at the very least root for them and, and care about them getting the thing they want. However, I think that you're doing yourself and your characters a disservice if you don't make a genuine attempt to view your main character through the lens of your antagonist. In other words, flip things around, put yourself in the antagonist's shoes, look at the main character and really try to see all their flaws. Try to see why they're a bad person. Try to see why they are not deserving of getting the thing that they want. Try to see why the antagonist is right to oppose them from reaching their object of desire. Because the more that you're able to see your main character from the perspective of other people in your narrative, the more nuance and realism you'll be able to infuse into that main character. And getting that sense of realism and, and sort of complexity into a main character is just a really big mistake I see with a lot of first drafts. They tend to make their characters very flat, 
very much a cardboard cutout. Which leads to our next mistake, which is making your main character too one dimensional. So you've probably heard people throw around this term before that, oh, I wanna read about three dimensional characters. But chances are there's not been too much definition about what a dimension actually is. The way I think about it, a dimension is a consistent contradiction between two aspects of a character's nature, which generates internal conflict and tension. If we look at Quoth in The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, he's presented in two contrasting forms. Initially, we see him as this mundane, down on his luck, quite shy innkeeper. He's pretty unremarkable at the start of the story. But then we flash back to his youth and we see this young, talented student with all these magical skills, this academic prowess, and he's an entertainer, he's a musician, he's the life of the party. And that contradictory nature between these two aspects of Quoth fascinates us. We want to understand how can a character go from being this to this? How can this duality exist within one person? Unfortunately, most fantasy books written by new authors don't even have one fascinating dimension of contradiction like this. Instead, a lot of new fantasy writers fall into the trap of just writing these very flat, one-dimensional cardboard cutout characters with no meaningful internal tension or internal struggle. And here's the thing, the more dimensions you can add to your main character, the more interesting they're gonna to be to read. In fact, a really key part of my outlining process when I'm developing a new fantasy novel is doing a contradiction study, looking at the aspects of contradiction that exist within my main character. So let's look at an example of how you might do a contradiction study for Quoth from The Name of the Wind. Reserved versus expressive. As an innkeeper, Quoth appears reserved and withdrawn, which is in stark contrast to the expressive and vividly alive young Quoth who experiences and narrates his past adventures. Idealistic versus pragmatic. Quoth, as a young and talented student at the university, often shows a really strong sense of idealism, pursuing knowledge and music with this almost romantic zeal. However, this pragmatism is also very evident in the survival skills he hones during his time living on the streets, where he had to be cunning and resourceful to survive. Humble versus arrogant. Despite his very humble beginnings and the time he has to spend just foraging in the wilderness and that kind of thing, Koeth often displays a very strong sense of arrogance, particularly in his interactions at the university. And his reputation as a magical and musical prodigy often contributes to this arrogance as well. Compassionate versus ruthless. Coith is shown to have a very deep sense of compassion, especially towards his friends and those who are suffering or disadvantaged, stemming very much from his own experience as a child of loss and hardship. Yet he can also be quite ruthless, and there's times where he makes very cold, calculated decisions, truthful versus deceptive. Coith values truth and wisdom, as seen in his quest for knowledge and understanding at the university. However, he's also very capable of deception and trickery, and we don't always know how reliable he is as a narrator. Brilliant versus impulsive. Quoth shows so much brilliance in his academic pursuits and his problem-solving skills. However, there's times when he also lacks on impulse, and this leads to unforeseen consequences and predicaments. Protective versus self-endangering. He often shows a very protective nature towards his friends and those he cares about, but conversely, his own curiosity and drive for adventure usually leads him into very dangerous situations. Faithful versus tempted. He's largely driven by, I would say, a sense of loyalty and faithfulness to his personal goals and to the people he cares about. However, there's a lot of temptations that come up throughout his adventures and throughout his story that he doesn't always do a good job of resisting. And I could probably go on and on with these, and you can probably pull out a bunch more dimensions within Quoth here, but the point here is that Quoth is at least an eight-dimensional character. There are eight contradictory dimensions within him. And that's why he feels so psychologically fascinating to read. Once you've mapped out your main character's contradictions, you're well prepared to avoid the next mistake, which is 
not thinking about description through the main character's unique lens. In every scene, I always like to ask myself, what does my main character see and feel and smell and just observe that other characters wouldn't? And especially when you're writing fantasy, this is such a critical way to world build. The way your main character describes something should give us such a clear sense of their backstory, what's important to them, what's not important to them, their goals, their hurts, their wants, the way they view their world, and just their personality in general. As Joe Abercrombie said when I interviewed him last year, try and put yourself in the shoes of that character. And you think, what are their concerns? What are their feelings? You don't worry about describing the world. You worry about how they experience the world. What are they thinking about? What makes them individual? This was a huge focus for me when I was writing my latest novel, Kingdom and Dragons. My two main characters, Rovin and Zora, both become dragon riders over the course of the story. But while Zora is native to Alatia, which is the country where the dragon riders live, Rovin, on the other hand, is a spy from another nation, and he bonds with a dragon so that he can infiltrate Elegium, the floating city of the dragon riders, to destroy it from within. Meanwhile, Zora is motivated to train to become a dragon rider so that she can get justice against the country where Rovin is from because their emperor murdered her father. So when Zora and Rovin both see Elegium, the floating city of the dragon riders for the first time, they describe it in radically different ways. Here's how Rovin views it. The floating city hovered in the sky, an immense shard of rock that drowned half of Olnwick in shadow. Ever since he'd left the manor, everyone he'd passed had been gawking up at Elegium with awed expressions, as if they were witnessing the arrival of a god, and not the home of the ruthless monsters who'd wrecked havoc across Ahara. Still, Robin had forced himself to smile as well. He was supposed to be Elation, after all, and if Elations rejoiced at the sight of Elegion, then he would, too. On the other hand, here's Zora's description. Zora stood up in her saddle, grinning. The sight of Elegion never failed to impress. Elegion looked like someone had sliced off the top of a mountain and turned it upside down, so that the narrow peak pointed towards the ground. It floated several hundred feet in the air, casting a shadow on the city of Alnwick below. Dragons swirled around Elegium. From this distance, they looked like flies, which went on to show how big the place was. Zora watched as a dragon soared out through an opening in the rock, before diving down towards a lake below. The dragon skimmed across the water, her talons dragging over the surface and spraying a cloud of mist into the air. Zora nudged Dapple, who sat on the saddle's pommel. That'll be us soon. The little dragon yipped in response. His awed gaze was fixed upon Elegium. It's the exact same setting, but we get a vastly different sense of Rovin and Zora and what's important to them and what they hate and what they like just through their setting descriptions of Elegium. It's all about what a character focuses on, how they interpret what they're seeing and what they choose to ignore. And like I said, Kingdom of Dragons has just released. If you would like to get a deluxe signed copy that has some gorgeous interior artwork on it, you can get that exclusively on Kickstarter using the link in the description down below. By backing the Kickstarter, you'll be supporting the work I do on this channel and you'll be getting a chance to see the storytelling principles that I'm always talking about in action in a novel that I think is my best work yet. Plus, backing the project on Kickstarter will get you the book before it is available in any other store. Check it out using the link in the description down below. And if you've already backed the campaign, as so many of you already have, then thank you so much for helping to support my dream of bringing these stories to life. And I absolutely can't wait to share this book with you. Now, the next mistake is a particularly big one to avoid because it's one of the major reasons why new fantasy writers fail with their books. And it is seeing plot as separate from character. There's this huge misconception in writing, which really, really annoys me, that you either have a plot-driven story or a character-driven story. And I just don't think that's true, and I don't think that's a useful way to think about writing. It's an absolutely stupid distinction, because plot equals the things that characters do. And we only understand characters through the actions they take over the course of a story. In other words, 
the plot. I mean, if you just think about it, it's so difficult to extract a character from a story and to try to describe them without just recounting the events that they do in the story. And even if you don't recount the events they do in the story, you're probably going to describe them by explaining their backstory, which is the plot that happened before the story. So ultimately plot equals character and character equals plot. And so when writers tell me that they have this amazing character, but they're struggling to fit it into the plot of the story, or they're struggling to make the character go along with the plot decisions they have made, then I'm sorry, but unfortunately you don't have a great character, or at least you don't have a great character for this particular plot. You probably either need to change the plot so that it is more suited to that character, or you need to modify that character to make it more suited for the plot. It shouldn't feel like you're forcing the characters to do something. Instead, there should be a sense of unity and cohesion. And it's not just that cohesion between plot and character, but also between plot and character and your world building and your theme as well. The more cohesive you can get and the more interwoven you can get all these different aspects of your story, the better the book is going to be. Just ask yourself, what is the best world to match my characters and my plot? How can I use this world to challenge this character to the maximum extent possible? Again, going back to my earlier point in this video about giving them strong challenges. How can your main character's progression through this world and the changing landscape of the story reflect their own growth and transformation? And when it comes to synthesizing your plot and your character, it's very important to avoid the next mistake, which is a weak introduction. You only get one shot at a first impression in life and when you're introducing your main character. And a lot of new writers butcher this. They just introduce the main character in a way that isn't engaging and isn't compelling. Instead, the way you want to think about this is Introduce your main character with a characteristic moment, a scene that immediately establishes what's important to this character, what they're trying to get from this life, how they view the world, the flaws that they might have to overcome throughout the course of the story. And most importantly, establish some sort of rooting interest. Why should we care about this character? Why are they making, and this is a really, really useful question to ask yourself here, how is my main character making a decision that 95% of other characters would not make in the same situation. To show a great example of this, let's look at Ned Stark's introduction in A Game of Thrones. The first time we meet Ned Stark, he is executing a deserter. I, Eddard, the House Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, sentence you to die. And he is asked a question about why did you choose to behead this man yourself? Why didn't you have someone else do it for you? You're the Lord of Winterfell. Surely this actual execution is beneath you. And he explains that if a man is to pass judgment on somebody else, they should be the one that has to swing the blade. And immediately we get a sense of, ah, this is a character who cares deeply about honor, even when it is inconvenient for them. And of course, it foreshadows events that happen later in that story and Ned Stark's own unfortunate ending. So don't be lazy with your character introductions. Ask yourself, you know, what is the perfect scene I can be using to encapsulate what's awesome about this character? Why we want to read about them? And again, you don't have to have readers liking your main character necessarily, but you definitely need readers to care about your main character. There needs to be a reason why in this first scene, you have to tell readers very clearly, hey, this is my character. This is why they're interesting. This is why you should care about them. And you're going to love the fact that we spend the next 500 pages 
with this character. So first impressions matter a lot. And this idea of trying to have readers really care about your main character leads to our next mistake, which is hyping up the main character without justifying it through action. This is a very, very common mistake. I would say that in most manuscripts I read by new fantasy writers, this is something that probably comes up like maybe 70 or 80% of the time. And what I mean by this mistake is basically having moments throughout your story where you have the description of your story say, oh, this character is so courageous, or you have dialogue from other characters saying, oh, this character is so courageous and brave, but you'd never actually have an action that justifies this. You never actually show them epitomizing bravery or epitomizing courage. And of course, this goes for any key trait of your main character. Basically, what I'm saying here is show them actually displaying this key character trait in action. Don't just have us be told that this is something that they do. Now, of course, there is a way to do this quote unquote mistake effectively, as there are ways to do all of these mistakes throughout this video in a good way. It all comes down to the nuances of your execution. For example, you know, you might have a character who you build up to be quite a competent fighter, then have a lot of fear when they are describing another character who we haven't met. And because we've built this one character up to be, you know, a really competent badass or whatever, then a lot of that respect we have for them instantly transfers over to another character once they start building up their threat and building up their skills just through their dialogue. But even in this instance, that first character has to earn that status and earn that reputation with us through the actions they take. So for the most part, you just really wanna be asking yourself the following question. Does my main character actually demonstrate these values, these traits, these attitudes that I keep telling my readers they have? Or am I simply just telling my readers that this character is X, Y, and Z without ever demonstrating it through the actions they take? And our next main character mistake is giving your character weak goals. Let's say my main character wants to steal this magical artifact from a religious order so that she can get revenge against them. Is that a good goal? I would say no, I would say it's a garbage goal. It sucks. It lacks a sense of specificity and emotional depth. It's just all surface level and there's no real specific reason, there's no real yearning why this is important to this character. And that's a real big issue because perhaps the primary thing that connects us really emotionally to a main character is that real deep soul shaking sense of yearning. As Donald Mass says, there are no universal characters, but there are universal human desires. And when a character deeply yearns for and longs and craves for something, we can't help but become invested in their struggle, especially if we know that they will have to overcome massive flaws and forces of opposition and limitations within themselves in order to get that thing. So coming back to the earlier example I used of this woman who's trying to steal this artifact from this religious organization, let's try to give her a better sense of yearning here. Perhaps she was like a colonial missionary that went out and tried to convert people to this particular faith. And then she came to realize the horrors of this religion sort of colonial conquest of these other nations and developed a tremendous amount of guilt. This deep sense that this religion that she had given so much of her life to had perverted the teachings it was supposed to exemplify. And rather than expressing the, the true nature of this religion's gods, it was actually showing the opposite instead. Instead of showing, let's say, love and compassion, it was spreading fear and distrust instead, for example. So now she has a much deeper sense of yearning, a much deeper purpose to her mission of pulling off this heist to steal this magical artifact. Her goal is no longer this shallow thing. Her goal is now operating at this deep spiritual level. It's this chance for redemption, almost. 
And that's something that I'm sure within our lives as readers, we can find some kernel of that to relate to, even if our circumstances or the things we've gone through in our life are different from that. Because we've made this goal so deeply personal and intimate and important for this woman's life. Always be asking yourself, how do I make this deeper, more personal, more emotionally gripping? And then to cap this off, make sure you avoid the next main character mistake, which is that the main character does not solve the climax. So I was actually discussing this with one of my students in the Outlining Bootcamp program the other day, and we were looking at the ending of his story. And I pointed out that the main character wasn't actually the one that was solving the story. There was just sort of this lucky event that came in and cleaned up all the events of the narrative and resolved the central conflict. And there is, of course, a way to make that kind of work, particularly if you're telling a story that is a bit nihilistic or a bit postmodern, but I think for the most part, most new fantasy writers are better off telling stories where the main character is the principal solver behind the climax. Because we are here for the main character's growth and their journey and their struggle to achieve their object of desire. And if you don't make them the principal agents that kind of solve the story, then why were we even following them in the first place? You want the climax of your story to be solved by the main character as a result of the things they have learned, the new character traits they've had to adopt, the personal transformation they've experienced over the course of their journey to get to this climactic moment. You want the climax of your story to be something that can only be solved by your main character at this particular moment in their arc. It couldn't have been solved by the main character at the start. That's why they had to go on the journey to get to this point here. And when you can do that, aligning the character's sort of internal transformation over the course of the story with the external arc of the plot and resolve both of those things at the same time in a climactic moment that can only uniquely be fixed or resolved by your main character, that's when you get a ending to your story that leaves readers astounded and makes them close the final pages with a huge grin on their faces.